Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Did you know that over 95% of all businesses fail within the first 10 years? By listening in to what Bob's guests have to say, plus direction from Bob Pritchard himself, it's our intention that you won't be among those statistics. Now, here's your host, Bob Pritchard. Hello, world. Welcome to the 334th episode of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business Channel. We're broadcasting in this eighth year across the world from Los Algondas in Mexico. It's an amazingly different environment from where I was last week in Queensland, Australia, where they're preparing to host the 70-country Commonwealth Games. But down here, they've got a wonderful square where they've got mariachi bands and lots of great restaurants, buckets of tequila. It's actually pretty cool. How convenient would it be to do your banking where you shop? Now, we buy about 40% of everything we buy, and we get it from Amazon online, and we do a majority of our banking online. So it makes perfect sense, unless, of course, you're worried about one company having monopoly on everything, for Amazon to go into banking. Now, according to the Wall Street Journal, Amazon's in talks with financial institutions to launch a checking account-like project product. Amazon's banking service would likely be aimed at low-income customers, a lot of them around. There likely wouldn't be any fees associated with the account, so they'd pick up a huge number of them. You know, there's 15 million people in the US that don't have any form of bank account, don't have a bank account at all of any site. I find that extraordinary. 15 million people, that's a hell of a lot of people. And, you know, they're likely to be Walmart shoppers to some degree, which is even more incentive for Amazon to woo them. With Amazon expected to have low or no account fees, they could tap into this unserved sector very well. Now, Bank of America analysts told CNBC that Amazon's aim of expanding its financial offering is less about disrupting the financial sector and more about increasing the number of people that they have in their own marketplace. So a person without any form of bank account would find online shopping pretty difficult. I don't know how you do it. So the move makes perfect sense. It'll bring 15 million people into the Amazon realm. Now, Amazon's already got a similar process in place. Amazon Cash allows you to upload money in your Amazon account, but you have to go through a convenience store. So using an Amazon bank account would make it even easier. There may be a case in Amazon's future, you know, to open up their banking services to rivally established banks. And with the size of Amazon, it wouldn't surprise me. And they're good at disrupting industry, so maybe the financial industry's next. There has been a number of people have tried, although none of them have had Amazon's financial clout and market reach, but they've they failed. For example, Walmart. Now, Amazon just might be testing the water before they decide to open an even larger range of banking services, including financial services and advice. Now, McKinsey's said banks should really fear Amazon. McKinsey's report says, we thought that fintechs would provide the chief digital threat to banks, but companies like Amazon are reshaping one industry after another, blurring the boundaries as they seek to be all things to all people. Now, Amazon's the world's biggest retailer, as we all know. This gives them an enormous customer base, not just in the US, but they're all over the planet. 
So you have companies with a, hundreds of millions of customers who offer a great customer experience and trade at a currency that rewards revenue but not necessarily profit growth. They are under pressure to keep increasing revenue and financial services is a large pool they can go after. We're starting to see that now. So, you know, they're talking about um, making it, facilitating shopping, making it easier, but there's no reason they couldn't offer deposits. They could have bank providers in their mall like they do with lots of other merchants. If anybody wanted to not have a bank charter, that is one way they could do it. However, whether Amazon decides to go into financial services or even eventually create their own bank remains to be seen. But the implications could be enormous for the big banks and for pretty much all financial institutions. Do you get my daily 30-second read business newsletter? We now have about 1.7 million daily subscribers. They keep pouring in. It's unbelievable. And people must see the newsletter and, and come on and join because every day we're getting more and more and more and more people. It takes just 30 seconds a day to read. It's really a simple read, so you don't have to put a lot of time into it. But we talk about all sorts of subjects from subjects like Hyperloop and autonomous cars and blockchain and new technology and new apps and uh, every subject under the sun. And it's absolutely free. The information's invaluable and we do not under any circumstances, let anybody use our database. So we don't sell it to anybody. We don't let anybody solicit you. So if you're getting the um, Bob Pritchard newsletter, then you're safe from getting pestered. So are you thinking of starting a podcast? A lot of people do. I talk to a lot of people who say, you know, we're looking at a podcast. Well, a recent report shows that podcast listeners doubled between 2008 and 2015 increased another 25% between 2015 and 2016. In the US alone, there are more than 57 million monthly listeners to podcasts. And if you go on to, you know, you get annoyed by people saying, sign up with me and I'll show you how to make money from podcasting. Don't do it. It's not easy and it's very seldom profitable. You know, most people who start a podcast think they'll get ad dollars rolling in after the audience gets big enough, yeah, get sponsors for your show, collect the money, easy. But that equation doesn't work. The real scenario is first, to land the big advertisers, you need to be part of a big network. Then to be part of a network, you need to have at least 50,000 downloads per episode. And that is really hard. Even the most successful guys will take four to five years to do that. And advertisers often ask for server logs to verify the numbers, so you can't bullshit them. And the networks take a 40 to 50% cut of the gross advertising revenues. So once you pay your production costs, whatever is left over <laughs> is your profit. So for a number of years, your podcast will not be cash flow positive. You'll have no sponsor revenue and you'll spend their production costs without any immediate return. Not only that, there are other reasons you shouldn't start a podcast. To be an average podcast host, you have to have the ability to guide a conversation, to pull out insights, to drill down when you need to. And most people don't possess those skills right off the bat. Then you need to do most of the work. And it's not easy. It takes a lot of preparation. 
you can hire help, but it costs money. A sound editor is going to cost you 75 bucks for every hour of the show. An audio engineer is going to cost you 150 bucks for every hour of podcast. The producer is going to cost you $100 an hour. So taken together, you're getting close to $1,000 an episode. And you can't outsource the preparation. You know, it takes me for this show somewhere between four and five hours to put everything together. And that's four or five hours that you're not out there trying to earn other money. So in all likelihood, you're simply going to be a poorly produced version of a commodity. In the same amount of time, you could have made a fortune or at least a good living doing something else. So now that I've destroyed your dreams, what the hell should you do? Well, Firstly, ask yourself why you do it. Is it ego? Or do you want to be a thought leader? Or what is it? Well, I suggest that you create a book or a blog. You know, it's easier. There's more income possibilities. And particularly if you're out there and you've got good audiences, you can sell books direct and, and you know, you get them for three or four bucks, sell them for 30. You make income straight off the bat. And a hell of a lot more people read books and blogs and listen to podcasts. So if you're thinking about a podcast, don't do it. Write a book and then go and flog the hell out of it to everybody you can find. Um, I've had five books. All of them have done well and they've done well primarily because of um, my speeches. You can go to a big speech, big conference and sell hundreds of the things and at 30 bucks a head, all that money's yours. Well, you and the tax department. Now, the big buzz all around the world at the moment is marijuana, particularly medical marijuana. So I thought that I'd talk to an expert. My guest today is my marijuana doctor, actually, Dr. Alan Frankel, who was a clinical professor at the University of California, Los Angeles School of Medicine for 18 years. And after a distinguished career in traditional medicine, Alan Frankel is one of the world's leading authorities on dosed cannabis medicine, and he applies his knowledge to all aspects of the cannabis plant and its therapeutic value to the treatment of multiple serious medical conditions. And I'll be back with um, Alan after this short break on the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. And we're coming to you from Los Algondas in Mexico after being up with the Commonwealth Games last week. And... uh, We're working on an ICO, initial coin offering, which we'll bring you the information on shortly. And we've got some big names involved. And uh, we signed a couple this week. And uh, next week, I'll be back in the studio in Los Angeles on Hollywood Boulevard, where entertainment meets technology. I'll be back after this short break. Do you want your business to achieve results you never thought possible? Bob Pritchard is recognized as the business leader's advisor and has 30 years of experience as a straight-talking troubleshooter for Fortune 500 companies and SMEs across the world. Whether you need a checkup across all departments of your business or simply want to improve marketing, 
advertising, performance measurement, or some other area, Bob Pritchard will work his magic so you can blow away your competition. Bob Pritchard is also one of the most in-demand speakers in the world. Over 1,500 clients on five continents and countless standing ovations are a testament to how he changes the fortunes of business. Pick up Bob's new book, Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, at your nearest bookstore or visit Bob's website at www.bobpritchard.com. Remember, if you want to be successful, call Bob Pritchard now. Worldwide phone numbers and more information can be found at bobpritchard.com. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking Radio Show. Over the past five and a half, nearly six years, we've given you insights into the lives of somewhere around 320 of the world's most interesting business people. We talk about what they do, and uh, the challenges that they faced, what makes them special, and we also try to find out what it is that makes them tick. You know, it's extremely difficult to have a successful business these days and to do something unusual. So people who have gone before us and have made a success of it, well, we need to listen to them because otherwise we'll end up making the same mistakes that they did, and... uh, That makes your road to success just that little bit harder. So the aim of this segment is to assist you to overcome challenges, to seize initiatives, and to become highly successful. So if you're sitting at home listening to this, then pay attention because a hell of a lot of really good information comes out of this segment. My guest today is Dr. Alan Frankel. He graduated second in his class from the UCLA School of Medicine and was elected to the Alpha Omega Alpha Medical Honors Society. And for three years, Dr. Frankel was selected by his peers of one of LA Magazine's top internists. He was a clinical professor at the University of California, Los Angeles School of Medicine for 18 years. The Chartscape medical software program used by the UCLA Bauer Cancer Center and the eScript medical software utilized by Kaiser Permanente were both developed by Dr. Frankel. After a distinguished career in traditional medicine, now this is where it gets really interesting. Alan Frankel is one of the world's leading authorities on dosed cannabis medicine. Now with 35 years of experience in internal medicine, Dr. Frankel implies his knowledge of all aspects of the cannabis plant and its therapeutic value to the treatment of multiple serious medical conditions. Now, it's about here that I've got to say, uh, Alan is my doctor, and uh, I'm um, taking marijuana tablets, and so far, they are working extremely well, and it enabled me to get off a couple of regular drugs that I take that, um, if you listen to the television commercials against them are pretty nasty and cause all sorts of problems. So so that's all good. Alan, welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. You are being heard right around the world. Well, thank you. It's great being on your show. 
How I can't wait to smile off my face. <laughs> How are you? I'm good. I'm excited but for today. Then I start a busy day with patients right at 10 o'clock. All right. Okay. We'll get on with it. Um, it's, it's really confusing to me. Um, it's not as confusing as it was, but the difference between medical marijuana, the marijuana that people sit around and smoke, and um, hemp. The, when you walk along Venice Boulevard, there's 20 shops selling marijuana if you've got anything more than a cold, and you see all these groups of people sitting around the outside these shops smoking joints <laughs> they should be the healthiest people on the planet but they don't look like it so what's the di- can you just quickly explain the difference between the three things or more if, it, if there's more well uh, first let's differentiate between hemp-based cbd and cannabis-based cbd right. um, although these plants are in the same genus of plants they're very, very, very different plants. And theoretically, some still think they're in the same species, but I found it very hard to breed these plants. And at the end of the day, the fiber plant, the hemp plant, was meant for fiber use and making paper, um, you know, a million goods, fuel, f- food, and the, it does have about 1.5% CBD. But it's also missing the... Uh, decent cannabis plants have about 15%, but the big difference is the entourage effect. Cannabis has hundreds of other cannabinoids, minor cannabinoids, terpenes, flavonoids, plant waxes, and a bunch more, Um, and hemp doesn't. So um, you just can't make the same medicine um, out of hemp as you can out of cannabis. And we've done many, many, many small trials with 20 patients at a time where we blind them. They don't know whether they're getting hemp-based CBD or cannabis-based CBD at the same concentration. And there's nobody who feels it's the same. It's um, We need to grow more hemp to be used for the right purposes, and we need to grow more cannabis for the right purposes. Right. Now, I've got the impression that most medical doctors are not enthusiastic about prescribing marijuana. Um, that might be wrong, but seems to be it's my impression so is that because doctors really don't believe it or is it because the um big drug companies are so far into their pocket that they brainwashed well i think it's some of both um there is a lot of doctors i mean there's a decent number of doctors who are comfortable writing the recommendation to the license for the medical cannabis but they won't go into any details about dosing because 21 years ago in a condom decision in, the, I believe, the Ninth Federal Circuit, um, it became illegal for doctors to give dosing information. Right. Um, so that scared a lot of doctors. To me, it seems so silly. I found out about that in 2006, and I just couldn't then, and I can't now, believe that they're going to come and arrest a doctor for giving dosing information and call it aiding and abetting. Um, but doctors also have just a fear of having anything to do with it, even giving somebody the recommendation. Um, I mean, I've got into a number of issues with the medical board. I mean, the medical board, I feel like, is, is changing, and the mainstream doctor view is changing, but there's still a number of doctors out there that um, are terrified of it, and they right. don't believe it has any medical value, 
Yeah, I don't think they've read an article on it, but um, it, it's come, it's changing. And at least in the community that I work in, in Southern California, the overwhelming majority of my patients come from physicians. Um, now, sometimes it's not the physician's idea. It's a patient's idea, and they ask the doctor, and they said, yeah, go see Alan. Um, but I, definitely my main work is in the, med- in the main medical community. That's where I want to stay. Do um, When you say doctors are not allowed to prescribe doses, is that just for marijuana or because they prescribe doses of everything every day, don't they? Yeah, well, it makes no sense. I mean, but when you think about 21 years ago when this law was written about dosing, what was there to eat? I mean, there was weed and there were some undosed edibles, and there was no way, in my opinion, to have medical cannabis under those circumstances. Right. I, know, I know some will disagree with this, but to me, medical cannabis is when you as a patient, me as a doctor, and the dispensing um, store all know how many milligrams of cannabinoids you're taking. That's what's necessary to do it medically because otherwise it's not that I'm not saying people can't get better and feel better by smoking or taking edibles but as far as using a doctor to be involved with it what's the point if you don't know what you're taking what can the doctor really say sure so after having a distinguished career as a medical professional and and very successful one how did you get started in the cannabis industry you wake up at two o'clock one morning and go aha i've seen the light i'm going to become a marijuana specialist how'd it come about well i woke up about two in the morning and i couldn't breathe and this was 1999 and i went i was just getting over i thought of bronchitis and i went to my friend who was a pulmonary doc and he said you're in heart failure so he walked me over to the heart doctor and i had a viral congestive heart failure, cardiomyopathy, and ended up with a bunch of heart biopsies. I was given a fairly short time to live, but I just didn't want to consider a a transplant, and um, I was very depressed. I'm 49. My kids were grown, but still, that's too early. But, But I just didn't want to do a transplant. And then some friends of mine came over and did a reverse um intervention. I had, believe it or not, never used cannabis until I was 49 and I got sick. Um, and three months later, my echocardiogram and everything was completely normal. Now, I'm not saying that the cannabis fixed my heart. I don't know what role it played, but I do know that it made me feel a whole lot better and it turned on my brain again. And I started reading literally thousands of articles in the National Library of Medicine and I became sold. And I, when I first started my practice 11 years ago, I thought it was going to be much more sophisticated with some dose medicines back then. But, I mean, we really didn't know anything. Well, I'm, I'm really glad you made it because if you hadn't made it, I'd still be on those crappy drugs. <laughs> well, this is all, <laughs> it's all about you, Bob. <laughs> Why, why do you recommend whole plant cannabis medicines versus hemp or laboratory-made medicines? Is that simply because of the do- – uh, well, I think you explained it before that it's a totally different ballgame. But um, how do you determine what to recommend? Well, as far as how to make the medicine out of the plant, um, 
I use nature's recipe and just keep all the molecules that are in the plant oil to begin with. I mean, I think it's fairly pompous for me to think that I know better than the last tens of thousands of years on exactly which molecules are important. And every year that goes by, we learn more about the hundreds of terpenes and flavonoids. I mean, yes, it makes it more tasty and more aromatic, but these all have tremendous medical value. And to me, the better we get at extracts, and the, the more the extracts smell like cannabis, the better we've done. Um, and ideally, if we do an extraction on a particular strain, let's say an OG Kush, which has a, a scent that a lot of people recognize, the extract should smell like OG Kush. Um, and not because it, oh, that's cool, but because it should have the same medical values. When I um, came in for my consultation, you you um, created or had a special um, combination of, of cannabis for me. How, how do you decide what dosage should be for what type of um, ailment? How do, you, how do you make that decision? Well, if I told you, I'd have to kill you. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a guess. <laughs> you know, I mean, there's like everything else in medicine, of course, part of it is at the end of the day, I think this. But I've been doing dosing for eight years. Um, and for a number of years, I would have people bring in their extracts and I would watch them dose because it's not legal for me to dose them. And I would mark down the dosage and the response and the, the caretaker would take the person home. And we followed up and we did hundreds and hundreds of patients like that. And then finally, about eight years ago, seven and a half years ago, we had enough CBD strains um, and with enough ratios, enough different terpene profiles that we started having a whole formulary. And as I continued to practice, if I felt we needed, or if I thought we needed a different extract with a different group of molecules, maybe extracted in a different way, I've been really lucky to be able to work with some collectives that I can say, make this and tell your your chemist to call me, I speak to the chemist, they make it, I take a look at it, and then we see what it's useful for. I mean, there are a number of times we've made extracts, um, long before THCA became a popular deal, we were making the extracts and trying them on people. Um, so that's how we learn. So do you have, uh, is it sort of a collective of people who specialize in the mar medical marijuana that all compare notes, and is it like the medical profession where all this research goes in everywhere and everybody compares notes? I would have to say there's a little bit of that starting, but very little. There's a lot of there, the, the medical or the cannabis business is a complicated business and people, uh, money becomes a very big deal very quickly. So people don't want to share information. Doctors are, are very much avoid dosing. I mean, right. I, do feel at times lonely. I would love to have that type of camaraderie with other doctors, and I have a little bit of it, right. but it's just starting. And doctors are going to have to believe somehow, and I'm not sure how our government's going to reassure anybody about cannabis right now, but just reassure that, yeah, you can dose. And right. I mean, when I think about being arrested and then the jury saying, wait, this doctor didn't give any dosing information, that's why he's being, you know, 
punished? No, no, he gave lots of dosing information and can't do that. Right. Um, what I liked about coming to see you is that um, you spent an hour, uh, I mean a full hour, listening to what my symptoms were, etc., etc., before you made any suggestions whatsoever. And usually if you go to a doctor, you know, you get 10 minutes and they throw a bunch of pills at you, give you a couple of samples and go away and come back in three months. You've got a totally different type of um, uh, practice. So how do you how do you not succumb to the greed that most doctors seem to succumb to? I, you know, I, I don't know why money has never been, that's why I don't have very much, um, it's never been number one, two, or three. I mean, when I had my children were young, obviously I need, needed to make more money, yeah. uh, but it was never my number one. I mean, my number one was, well, other than being a dad and now being a my sixth grandchild is on the way, by the way. Oh, good. Congratulations. So, so awesome. But I've always loved practicing medicine. And I think uh, if you end up as a doctor and you are truly very, very empathetic, and I'm not saying that's a blessing. That's a blessing and a curse. Right. Then you're kind of forced to either be miserable and have your patients be miserable, which mostly they are, or you have a good time with it. and. Yeah. Voltaire in 1732 stated, the art of medicine consists in amusing your patient while nature cures them. I believe that. And I, you know, I think as doctors, we help manage people. But I mean, did I cure you with this? No. But if you're feeling better and you're on less medications, I would consider that a success. Right. Uh, when I walk along the promenade at Venice Beach, apart from being amused, there's a couple of dozen marijuana dispensaries with big signs saying, if you've got any one of these 500 things wrong with you, everything from a cough to an ingrown toenail, come in here, we'll give you a marijuana card and you'll be cured instantly. Is that is that really all hype and marketing bullshit or is it really a wonder drug? Well, okay, the re I sometimes get embarrassed when talking to patients or giving talks and go down the list of all the things this does. And it seems, it does seem too good to be true, except if you look upon it as critical nutrition. Right. And I think these molecules are critical nutrition for us. And just like scurvy coming across or pellagra or beriberi, all these other nutritional deficiencies in populations over history, there are tons of very, very sick populations throughout history just because either a piece of an orange or some other, or thiamine or B6, I mean, the, then CBD and all these other cannabinoids might be essential nutrition. I think they are. So are you saying that most things that are wrong, that, go wrong with people um, I, I get internally not a broken leg or something but most things that go wrong with people are all linked back some way to nutrition well broken leg is actually linked to nutrition not just through vitamin D and calcium but also CBD um, increases the speed of a healed fracture by 30% um, so even with a broken leg the nutrition is important I mean do I think there's 
cures for everything in nature. You know, I'd have to say I don't know, but I suspect there's a lot, lot more than we're ever taught. And we know things are being destroyed in the Amazon, and I don't think things would be destroyed if, if it was all useless. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I have become a plant medicine doctor. It doesn't mean I never write a prescription or never prescribe a pill, but it doesn't happen that often. Right. So why is it that um, the medical profession it, in, in the main and the government are so – seem to be so anti-medicinal um, cannabis. Well, I would take those two groups separately. The government feels the way it does because they want it for themselves. I mean, the, the number of cannabis drugs that are coming out and new drugs that will be released, the U.S. federal government has well over 500 patents on cannabis. And sometimes when I want to find a way to do something, I just type into Google U.S. federal patent cannabis on blah, blah, blah. Right. And you take that blah, blah, blah and search for it, find out what, if you can get it retail, and all of a sudden you've got a part of a future patent without violating a patent. Right. Um, so the, the money is 90% of the reason the government is against this, because they want it for themselves, period. And that's why they're actually much more supportive of recreational cannabis than medical. I mean, look what happens in... Washington, Oregon, Colorado, um, as soon as recreational is there, medical dies. And the reason is, it's in large part, I think, doctor's fault. If you don't have a doctor that's pushing the maintenance of medical cannabis, it just goes back to recreational where it was before all of this started, except it's legal. Um, now, doctors are mostly just fearful of losing their license. Um, there is fear about, I mean, when I first started 11 years ago, the stuff I got, I heard from doctors that liked me. I'm not, I'm not talking about the ones that might not like me, but that liked me and respected me, that you, what are you doing wasting your life? Right. You're wasting your life, and you're going to get in trouble. You know. So you have to decide, if you want to push the envelope, um, I think it, you have to be somebody that can be scared. I mean, there was plenty of times I mean, I was scared or didn't sleep or still, if I hear a siren, I think it's something else. So, I mean, there was a lot of, I had well over 20 undercover cops. So it's fear, but you have to be willing to live with that fear. Um, I think I was lucky that my kids were grown. I was a little bit older. Um, I don't even have a girlfriend, so there's nobody to tell me what not to do. So, I mean, there's several doctors that I've hired, I haven't hired, I've interviewed that I need. By the way, if there's a good primary care doctor out there. I'm looking for another doc. Okay. They're interested in it, but then their spouse says, well, you crazy? You have two young kids. And I get that. I mean, so I, I think the doctors have the fear and the government has the greed. Is this, um, this going to change? Well, let, let's go back to the comment about where they've legalized recreational marijuana that um, medical marijuana uses it as declined. It, is that because people think that because they can smoke pot, that's going to um, solve their problems without getting more accurate prescription? Whatever. People, don't know. people just don't know. I mean, um, nationally, or even in Los Angeles County, 15% of people use cannabis on some regular basis. That means 85% don't. No. So, 
And the majority of people have tried cannabis at least once in their life, but it was a bad experience. It was high THC. People, most people don't want to smoke. They don't want to get stoned. And people, if once people truly understand that they could take a capsule that's dosed, or you could take, a, you have taken a capsule. Yeah. And I know, I, I can't remember exactly what I gave you, but I, we couldn't rely you know, be public on it, but I know exactly what you're taking. Um, and when you're taking it, and if you're not better, there's a good chance I'd be able to talk to you and make a suggestion to make it better, right. because I've just done this enough. Doctors are just too scared, and they, they, the vast, what have the vast majority of cannabis doctors been doing? They've just been writing recommendations for $40, and that's been that. There certainly are some very qualified um, cannabis doctors in the state. Um, but very little dosing, and it's a very small number of cannabis doctors. And it also has to be a cannabis doctor who's willing to, you know, bump up on stuff. Well, if um, you know, we see specials on CNN and whatever about how cannabis has worked for all sorts of conditions and. Um, you know, stopping seizures and all those sorts of things. So there must be a fairly strong movement, even if it's sort of an underground movement, to get governments and other doctors to change their attitude. Is that so or not? Um, more so in other countries than the U.S., believe it or not. I mean, Europe, we all think that right now they're way ahead of us with cannabis, and even in Israel where they do a lot of research, their clinical cannabis is a very small program at this point. Right. Ultimately, it's going to be a very big program, and what some countries are doing, which makes all the sense in the world, is to put the medical cannabis that's in a container with capsules or dose sprays in their pharmacies, because they have socialized medicine anyway, yeah. and then have coffee, you know, coffee, coffee shops for, for smoking. And I, I think that's the way the world should divide this up and just see it as very different. Hmm. Where's the United States going with regard to medical um, marijuana in the next, where do you see it going in the next five to 10 years? Well, I see more states. I mean, we're well over, what, 35, 38 states have some form. Um, I, I think that's going to get closer and closer to 50. And I don't know how the feds are going to change the scheduling because they have to have something very different than what the, let's call it the organic cannabis market that I'm a part of. So, and, and they don't want their cannabis medicines that are from GW Pharma. I mean, great, good company. It's a very good company. Um, but they don't want their medicine to smell like cannabis. Yeah. They don't want to have even a drop of THC in it. So they're stripping out everything else and you've got CBD or you have THC and those, to me, it looks like are going to be Schedule 3, and they'll leave the whole plant as Schedule 1, so they have control of it. Is, um, so it is, even if it's not as powerful, is, is just smoking a joint at, in some way um, medically healthy for, or medically good for you? Well, I think a lot of people um, get a lot of benefits from smoking. But the people get benefits from smoking, either they're smoking and they just enjoy the feeling, they enjoy the habit, the break, like having a drink, but this is sure. better for them. 
Um, and yeah, there are people who use it to help with falling asleep. But when you start getting with pain issues, um, certainly seizure issues, cancer issues, you know, diabetes, and on and on and on, um, multiple sclerosis, myasthenia gravis, I mean, there's a lot of things we treat. I don't know how to treat those smoking because there are certain dosages of different cannabinoids that we found to be useful. Um, then some people, I mean, if they're able to smoke and they like smoking and it works for them, I'm the last person to disagree. Yeah. I mean, if more people, first of all, just don't want to get stoned or smoke, so they need to know what they're taking. Yeah. And, uh, it's interesting that my capsules, I take okay. um, oil in a capsule form, that there's no, no marijuana odor whatsoever, or there doesn't appear to me, to my nose anyway. It's a um, fairly neutral smell. Well, if you open up the capsule and smell it, it'll it'll have that herbal smell to it. But yeah, it's it's subtle. But if you if you open up a capsule with hemp CBD, um, I mean, it's a very different smell. Yeah, because I I've just got off being overseas for um, a few weeks and went to a number of countries with sniffer dogs everywhere and uh, just had it in my luggage and nothing. No, you know, even the sniffer dogs didn't pick it up. I don't think there's so many drug dogs anymore. I think there's bomb dogs. I mean, oh, they're bomb dogs. <laughs> imagine with all the trouble TSA is in, they make a big announcement, they found a joint, you know, they found <laughs> a joint. Do, does anybody really want that to happen? Do we really want to then involve, I realize there's still some places in this country where that happens, but do we really want resources going to that joint? It's ridiculous, oh. I agree. Um, <laughs> so are all marijuana plants, you know, we, we hear about these acres of marijuana that are growing everywhere. Can all, can, can all of those plants be used to create oils that are of some benefit or is there only certain strains that... Um, that are effective. I think um, we're just getting started, and this one of the secrets to the future is better extraction, more complete extraction, and more variety and strains. I mean, we may not know at this point what a new strain might do, but it's going to be different. I mean, it's just no question it'll be have some different effects. Right. So, and it's not just the strain. It's you know, have you heated it or using it raw? Um, a lot, a lot of variables. When you're growing the plants, if you let them flower in the in under lights for an extra week or ten days, you get different terpene profiles. You'll have a different effect. So oh, just okay. how long you um, spend flowering the plant will make a difference. So it needs a lot more research, is what you're saying? Oh yeah, yes. Okay, can, can you get addicted to um, medical marijuana? Well. You know, when the plant comes out of the ground, it doesn't know whether it's going to be used medically or recreational. So can you get addicted to cannabis? The federal government, for a number of years, has published a list of the rates of addiction, cannabis, um, coffee, alcohol. Cannabis comes in around 5%. Um, coffee comes in at 20%. So, you know, it's – and I think a lot of this addiction – I mean, addiction to me is defined as not smoking once a day or once a week or several times a day, whatever. 
It's by what it's doing to your life. It's, it's making your life better. And people around you would say, well, we don't like the smell, but you know what? He's much better. Um, or if your life is in ruin, then, you, you know, then you've got a problem, like with any other drug. But the rate of addiction is very low, even according to our government. And withdrawal symptoms, I, I think, are virtually non-existent. And when they often claim that these people couldn't sleep as well and they were more agitated for a couple of weeks, that's why they were using the stuff to begin with. So it's not that surprising that um, if, if we give up our cannabis that we feel worse. I must admit, I wake up in the morning and I can't do without my coffee, but I don't go reaching for your pills. So I guess I'm more addicted to coffee. <laughs> um, is there a role for medical cannabis in the fight against overdoses and deaths from opioids? Oh, I think that's got to be one of the main things we should be focusing on. I mean, first of all, try avoid a lot of the opiate. The, the, the one thing that's necessary to have an opiate addiction is an opiate prescription. So the less prescriptions of opiates that we can start with, the better. So for if it's post-op pain for two days, all right, narcotics. But people need to be switched then to something else, and cannabis would be a fine thing to try. Right. Also, with withdrawal, when I see patients, whether they're cancer patients that are using a lot of narcotics, and they have real pain, um, but they still get addicted, and they still have withdrawal symptoms, and those are pretty much eliminated if you have a usually like a one-to-one CBD-THC um, withdrawal symptoms from narcotics is much, much easier. So that's not adequate, but it's a start. Do, um, does medical marijuana take a while to um, assimilate into your system and therefore a while for it to have effect? Or is it, you know, most of these pills that the doctors force on you um, – pretty much have an effect immediately. I'm not necessarily saying always good, but is, is medical marijuana something that works fairly quickly or does it take a period of time or how does so? Both. Both. I mean, there are, for anxiety, the, the effects of using whole plant CBD come on pretty quickly, often within minutes, literally minutes. Um, for schizophrenic that you're treating with higher doses of CBD, those patients seem to take a couple of weeks. Right. And there are just patients with depression that get better very quickly and some that take three or four weeks. And I'm sure there's different mechanisms. Maybe we have to rely on serotonin enhancement for some of them. But, um, you know, in general, go, you know, start low and go slow, but not always so low. If somebody, you have to leave it up to the patient and their own, and assessing as a physician the patient's fear of being stoned is a critical part of the visit. Right. Because if they have no fear of it, and they're in a tremendous amount of pain, and they don't have to drive, then you're in a position, well, let's go for it. And, you know, to get this guy a little bit psychoactive, but his pain's gone and he's giggling, that's a better situation. Yeah. It might have the giggling side effect or little stony side effect, but I don't get a lot of complaints about that. It seems weird that you know, doctors are prepared to describe um, pills that um, are addictive, and yet, and people will take those without any, without giving it a second thought. Yet they're worried about marijuana, medical marijuana being addictive. That seems to me to be pretty weird. Um, <coughs> so, for somebody out there who's 
using traditional medicine and and it's not working or they're having negative side effects how do they how do they go about talking to you and how do they get to learn more and how do we how do we build your business so that you can have the same effect on other people that you're having on me well um, first checking out my website greenbridgemed.com type in Alan Franklin you'll find my website I've got um, a number of years of blogs there right um, and calling my office for if you're local to come in for a visit or a phone educational consult oh, we do a lot sorry. of those or Skype okay terrific Alan, thanks very much for speaking with me on the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. That was that's really interesting because I think um, medical marijuana is something that I I didn't know much about. My wife put me onto it, um, and you know she who must be obeyed is usually right. And uh, I'm I'm really pleased that I met you, and I'm really pleased we came in for that consult. Now, if you're listening to this and you have some concerns about an illness that you've got or the medicines that you're taking, go. And talk to Alan, and you go to Greenbridge, G-R-E-E-N, Bridge, B-R-I-D-G-E, Med, M-E-D, dot com. You'll be really pleased that you did. And I'll be back with more of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business Network after this short break. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking, absolutely no bullshit business radio show. And we're on Voice America Business Network, and we're broadcasting today from Mexico. It's really nice down here. I like it. Fintech is a fairly new term. You hear it all the time now. I can remember just a few years ago, you never heard the term fintech, but it's actually just short for financial technology. So it's all the technology and the new um, developments that are happening around the finance industry and it's not before time it's been pretty prehistoric and it's been around for an awful long time without any change at all and uh, although most people aren't aware financial technology is really revolutionizing the financial industry every every part of it we've talked before about how banks are going to be struggling to survive in the next uh, 10 years. I don't know about you, but my local bank, I spoke to the bank manager and I said, how many how many people under 30 do you ever get into this bank? And he said, none. You know, the only people we get are the oldies who traditionally still write checks. You know, the number of checks written has fallen from 380 million or something uh, 10 years ago to about 70 million today. That's only two checks, you know, but it's hardly any. Now, if you use PayPal, Zelle, or Zenmo, or any of those, if you've transferred money online between accounts or sent money to a family member, maybe you've applied for a mortgage online or through an app, then you've used fintech. So 
Welcome to the revolution. You're now up to date. You have, it's a, you're happening. Fintech's using technology to create efficiencies in the financial markets. It doesn't matter whether they're in banking or wealth management, payment systems, or even areas like bookkeeping. So it's all changing very quickly. And with blockchain, we've talked about blockchain on this channel, uh, on this um, radio show millions of times, and blockchain is going to change it even more and take people even further away from banks because what blockchain does is blockchain creates a direct contact between lenders and borrowers, for example, uh, and you go through the blockchain rather than going through a middleman like a bank and it cuts out the fees. So instead of paying the ridiculous fees the banks charge, you know, you walk into a bank and they say, give me your money and we'll give you half a percent interest. And you say, okay, that's cool. So you give them the money and then you say, how about a car loan? And they say, oh, yeah, we'll give you a car loan. We'll give it to you at 7%. So it's your money and they've just made 6.5% on it. I mean, that sort of stuff is not acceptable today and blockchain's going to change all that. But if you look at Venmo, which is owned by PayPal, they can link your bank account or your debit card to your phone number and within seconds... You can transfer money to friends or family members who also have the Venmo app. So a Venmo user quite literally types in the dollar amount to transfer, hits send, and the payment's done. It's that quick. And uh, all transactions through blockchain will be like that in the very near future. Now, fintech's emerging in the form of startups, startups all over the planet working on fintech, but a key tenant is also supplying existing financial firms with tech-driven solutions to better serve customers and to lower costs. Me thinks it's a bit like uh, Uber. You know, Uber came in, the taxis said, ah, we'll be more like Uber, but by the time they realised the world had changed, it was too late, and now taxis are really struggling everywhere in the world and getting murdered. Well, this is, banks are kind of the same thing. Now, the benefits of fintech, there's a lot of them. For customers, customers increasingly want financial service needs handled quickly via mobile apps or minimal clicks online. You don't want to go on and have to go through a whole bunch of rigmarole with access, transparency and convenience. And technology enables this to happen. The society as a whole, you know, millions of people don't have access to a bank account or a debit card. In Africa, almost nobody has um, bank accounts, but they, they now have the M, M card, and it's, it's unbelievable. It's just changed things totally, and the society, a lot of the society is totally cashless. So, and this is happening in many areas around the world. They're going completely cashless, handling all, fi- handling all financial transactions via mobile, and some form of mobile money is now available across the globe. And as I mentioned, it's particularly popular in Africa. Now, this fintech provides financial services for remote remote areas where it never existed before. And fintech will likely play an outsized role in shaping the emerging middle class across the planet. And in business, businesses can now provide their clients access to technology to make banking more convenient than ever which can ultimately build trust. People like to do business when it's easy. FinTech also potentially applies to anti-fraud 
and added security for financial accounts. And this benefits both the business and the consumer. What's more, the technology also leads to lower costs for businesses and more efficient use of their labour force. And it's expanding rapidly. First, there are the large, well-established financial institutions like Bank of America and Wells Fargo and Chase. Then the tech behemoths such as Apple, Google, Facebook and Twitter. Now, all of these companies have got their eyes on banking of some sort because banking is where all the money is, right? Everybody's got money and they put them in banks. Then companies providing technology and fintech applications to people like MasterCard and FinServe and First Starter and even exchanges like NASDAQ. Then there are the disruptors, the fast-moving tech companies that are focused on revolutionising a certain part of the financial services sector. You've got mobile payment companies like Stripe and PayPal and Venmo, loan and mortgage companies like SoFi, new insurance companies like Lemonade and RoboAdvisor. They're everywhere. Now, as the um, technology becomes more broadly adopted, competition will drive innovation. The cashless society where payments and transactions are handled by, handled by phone will increase and a person can manage their whole lives through an app. And that's not very far off. You know, talking to people and they say, oh, you know, this autonomous cars, that's bloody years off. Well, guess what? April this year in California. Okay, remember, if you're not living on the edge, you're taking up too much space. It's easier and it's much more rewarding to do the impossible than it is to do the ordinary. Anybody can be ordinary. Anybody. And 99% of people are. You don't want to go and live your life being ordinary. Boring as batshit and you never get any satisfaction for achieving anything. So if you're always trying to be normal, you'll never know how incredible it can be to be not normal. I hope you can join me again next Tuesday when I'll return to our regular studio on Hollywood Boulevard in Los Angeles where technology meets entertainment. In the meanwhile, I'll be glad to get home, actually. I've been away for a few weeks. In the meanwhile, continue to be successful. The alternative really sucks. This is Bob Pritchard. You've been listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Please join us again next Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until then, enjoy another week of success in your business and your life.